This week, Dr. David Brumley from For All Secure is with us to discuss bringing autonomy to AppSec. Then, in the enterprise security news, Zerofox has a $1.4 billion blank check. Corellium raises $25 million in a Series A. Graynoise makes its data free to help out Log4j sufferers. AWS suffers its third outage in a month, coincidentally hindering Graynoise's efforts to help Log4j sufferers. Ditching unicorns for dragons, yet another easy way to become domain admin, thanks Microsoft. New report finds that current phishing training isn't effective and is even potentially harmful. Finally, we'll take a look at some of the biggest stories and interviews we discussed this year in ESW, and we'll wrap with our thoughts and hopes for 2022. The last episode of Enterprise Security Weekly for 2021 starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Let's face it, cyber attackers have the advantage. ExtraHop is on a mission to help you take it back. Regain the upper hand with security that can't be undermined, outsmarted, or compromised. When you don't have to choose between protecting your business and moving it forward, that's security uncompromised. See how it works in the full product demo, free online at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy Pfeffernoos Day. I think I said that right. This is episode 255, recorded on Thursday, December 23rd, 2021. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me today is Mr. Tyler Shields. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Adrian. Decided to uh, do this final one from home, so not in the studio office today. And yeah, how are you? I'm good, and it seems appropriate. You know, we're just uh, a few days away from uh, from time off and holidays. I, I think for several people on this call, this is this is really the last thing we have going uh, going on that's work related before we all take some time off. Do you yeah, know no, what def- a Pfeffernoos is? I, I definitely wrapping up on this call. I have two little meetings uh, right after this, and I am done for the long weekend, and I have no clue what a Pfeffernoos is. Let me let me see if I can fathom a guess it sounds like it could be a type of sausage that you drink lots of beer with in germany uh it's holiday related i'll tell you that i was much. close i was close it is a german spice cookie and it looks oh, wow it like looks... i was even the fact that i even had it in the correct category being food surprises me yeah yeah <laughs> fluffy cookies made with ground nuts and spices covered in powdered sugar they look kind of like uh, like a almost like a compressed sweet bread. You know, it looked like a very uh, kind of fluffy type of of cookie, not not like a hard cookie. Well, I think that we should have some audience members who know how to make these send them into G Unit Studios, bombard <laughs> bombard Paul and team with them because they love it when they get random things in the mail and have no idea where they're from. They, they do, Johnny. They do, yeah, indeed. They do love that, and <laughs> I've heard stories of some of the things that they've had delivered that were just like off the wall, bizarre stuff. So definitely, please send some farfig nugans or whatever they're called into G Unit Studios. Attention, Paul Asadorian. They, they, they've got to smell better than meat scented candles, though. And definitely would taste better too. I would have to. It say. would definitely taste better. Yeah. All right, uh, an announcement. Uh, Security Weekly listeners save one hundred dollars on your. 
Oh, are we still doing this? <laughs> nope. Stop. Cancel it. <laughs> ah, that, so, so yeah, uh, late breaking news. If you haven't heard, RSA got moved to the first week of June. And, uh, and yeah, I think we, we swapped out that announcement and I missed it <laughs> in my well, show notes. The actual that, that, announcement. That, that whole movement to June is going to be a super interesting thing because RSA is now going to be over the top of the Gartner Security Gartner. and Risk Show same week, and it's going to be uh, in the same month as Reinforce. Yeah, and the we we actually uh, CRA acquired an events company that has one that same month also, but it's a couple weeks away. It's it's towards the end of June. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, I did some analysis a couple years back on uh, events in cybersecurity. We have well over two thousand events a year, or at least we did back in like uh, two thousand nineteen. I think it was when I did that research. And the heaviest month was June. In fact, the single day with the most simultaneous cybersecurity conferences, I think, was June first, with nineteen conferences going on in the same day. So. Nah. 19 conferences. That's absolutely insane. I think Gartner's and some other folks are probably going to end up moving their stuff. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. All right. So the announcement I should have read is uh, (laughs) is to let you know uh, that if you have a a specific guest or topic that you would like us to have on the show, you can submit those suggestions at securityweekly.com forward slash guests. Uh, you can complete that form there, and we go over those on a pretty regular basis. It's actually a, a, a very fun process to go through that list. All right, and today's topic for uh, our first interview, actually our only interview today, is bringing autonomy to AppSec. We're very excited to have Dr. David Brumley, CEO and co-founder of For All Secure, with us today. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon and the previous director of Scilab, part of Carnegie's Security and Privacy Institute. He's contributed a lot of stuff to the to the industry. He's he's been involved with it for a while. Uh, but I think my, my favorite thing from his bio is that he's the faculty mentor for the CMU hacking team Parliament of Pony, or PPP, which is internationally ranked as one of the top CTF teams in the world. Welcome, David. Hey, well, uh, thanks. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, lots of uh, <laughs> David was just regaling us with, with you know, just just super interesting stuff that uh, I, I guess uh, going through academia, writing all these papers. Um, are you comfortable sharing that story with us that that you just told? But uh, when when you got to meet Obama? Oh yeah. So we were talking about, I, I had learned that in international protocol, actually being a professor ranked higher than a doctor. And Adrian asked me, how do you know that? And I was like, oh, I was at the White House and the protocol officer told me that. And um, the reason I was there is it was sometime in 2013, I think it's hard to remember, but I had won um, what was called the United States Presidential Early Career Award. So it was the highest honor that the US gives to young scientists. And I got it from Obama. So. It was kind of cool to go to the White House and meet the president. And um, yeah, it it was just an all out amazing trip. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And and, and time wise, yeah, there, there's only, you know, before the pandemic, during the pandemic and after the pandemic at this point, everything else blurs. 
It really does. I mean, so what I, you know, what I was working on then is actually the same thing I'm working on now, just in a different context. So for a long time, I've been looking at how do we automatically find exploitable bugs before attackers? And back then it was really a research question. And today at For All Secure, what we're trying to do is we're trying to commercialize that research. Hey, real quick, uh, I, have a, I have a quick question for you. Did I hear that you, you ran a team or were on a team or was part of a CTF team? Can you give me a little more color on that, that uh, comment that Adrian threw at me that I didn't even see coming? Oh, yeah. So when I, well, still at CMU, we do a couple of things for the, the community. And it's kind of interesting because it's quite, since I've moved into business, it's actually just a different mindset. But when I was at CMU, I had an amazing student named Brian and he wanted to play in the DEF CON CTF. And he started, you know, he, he told me one day he was trying out for all these other teams. And I said, hey, why don't we start one at CMU? And so I worked with him and a couple other people at CMU and we created Plaid Parliament Opponent. And this was, yeah, around 2013 as well. And since then, we've gone on and we've been, you know, ranked number one in the world many times. And I think we have five DEF CON wins. So five That's black badges, um, considered a pretty big thing. And then one of the things we also do is we run PicoCTF.com, which is a high school hacking contest, which is used, um, I think last time I checked, we had like 100,000 registered users. And so I'm a big believer actually in CTFs as a great way to learn computer security skills. Yeah, it's uh, that is an absolutely amazing story. It's a little known fact because I don't generally tell people, but I have two black badges from CTF at DEF CON myself in 97 and 98. So um, way, way, way back in the day. But it caught my ear that you were an, you were a fellow CTF person. So that's awesome. Yeah, it, I mean, having times changed, right? So when you when you look at CTFs, for those of you who haven't played it at a place like DEF CON, they're full spectrum attack defense. Everyone is given compiled binaries so you have no source code or anything and your goal is to be able to exploit other people and defend yourself and so that's kind of what i grew up with thinking of as computer security and boy has the the field expanded since then <laughs> yeah back when i won it uh, it was a little bit different you were given nothing you plugged into a network and you tried to hack every other player winner take all so it was quite a bit more deadly and cutthroat back then but uh you <laughs> know because if, if yeah, no, if you got in and got the opponents, if you if you popped the opponent, first thing you did was gank all his wares because he might have some zero day that nobody knows about. So it was just a it was a different uh, different game back then. But that's super cool, man. I'm, I I love that. Back to you, Adrian. I know you actually have uh, an interview to conduct. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No, it's it's uh, very interesting stuff because a lot of the people interested in, in security and getting into security, um, you know, when I started out, you know, I, I don't think I found out about CTFs until DerbyCon became a thing. I think that's the first place I, I really encountered them uh, and, and learned about them and, and actually participated in one. Uh, but pretty important, uh, you know, for, for getting people interested and getting people into the industry. In fact, uh, Pico CTF, uh, there, there's a local uh, high school cybersecurity class that I talk to on a pretty regular basis, and, and they've used Pico CTF before. Oh, that's fabulous. It's definitely been a labor of love, but we're excited that um, people have found it valuable and can, we continue to run it. It's actually, it's actually been good for CMU as well. So I don't know if you know this, but if you play in Pico CTF and you're one of the top 10 teams, I'll personally write you a letter of recommendation to any college, not just CMU, but anywhere. Um, and oh, so sometimes wow. that gives you a little extra something on your college application. And that is a pretty cool perk of doing well in a CTF. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it's free, but I think it's meaningful. So before we dive into some of your research uh, and, and your company, um, would you provide us a little bit of background on how you found yourself getting into security? Yeah, it looks like you have a background maybe in in more generally computer science and maybe also uh, electrical engineering. Is that correct? Uh, I have both. So really, I mean, the story starts right after I got out of college. I went to Stanford and I became the computer security officer. So this was before CISO actually being an elevated title. This was more like an IT job. And just to date it, this was like 1998. So this is when it was literally google.stanford.edu. Um, I wow. remember Google would, would go and, you know, go index web pages and bring down entire networks because we had much more bandwidth than other people. Um, and I got really interested in computer security because I kept seeing people hack the entire Stanford network, right? You find a new vulnerability back in the day, it was an RPC, for those of you who remember that, and you just own all the different machines. And so um, I was doing IT for many years and I decided, hey, I wanna, I wanna go deeper into this. And so I went and got a master's at, at uh, Stanford in computer science and I got my PhD at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and now I'm a tenured professor of CS and ECE at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, that, that's that's a heck of a perspective to to bring to really any any company or role, uh, you know, at this at this point. Um, yeah. So, and uh, kind of moving forward, uh, you know, obviously you you did a lot of stuff between then and when you started this company, uh, but it sounded like this company did this company start with the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, or or was that just a you know kind of like a footstep in the path uh, of founding for All Secure? It was actually a footstep in a path. It's kind of a funny story and harkens back a little bit to CTFs. So back, it was probably uh, 2009, 2010, we were publishing papers in something called automated exploit generation. And the whole idea was to show that we could create, you know, application security techniques that could create working exploits, um, novel exploits for compiled programs. And so this was our research. And I, it was pretty funny because at the time, and I won't say who it was, but all these people in industry were laughing at us. There was this huge mailing list where someone was making fun of us, quite well known in security for about six months. So we had been working in automated exploit generation and uh, back then, and we just continued to mature the research. And it got to the point that enough of the community was working on this, that DARPA said, hey, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we should see if we can do what we did with autonomous cars for computer security, because we all know that the workforce just is not scaling today. And it's funny, you're talking about CTFs, right? Like throughout this, this even when people were making fun of us, we were you know, winning black badges at DEF CON. So we actually know how, to, how real exploits work. Um, but our entire goal was to take kind of what those high-end hackers did and build automated algorithms to do it. And in some ways also to take advantage of the law of large numbers, like maybe there's, if you're given one program and the goal is to find an exploit, it really takes a human. But if you're given a hundred programs, I'm sure you can find an exploit in 15 of them, a brand new zero day. Um, yeah. And so we started doing research in that. And then we entered the Cyber Grand Challenge to show full autonomy is possible and we won it. Uh, and that's really, it's really cool. It's kind of like the art of the possible, but that doesn't mean it's the art of, industry at that point. And so we won that and we had created for all secure right to compete in that. 
And the reason that we created For All Secure is just to have focus. As an academic, you're publishing papers, and we wanted to not focus on that. We just wanted to win. Um, and so I recruited my grad students, some CTF players, and we built Mayhem. And then in 2016, after we won, we went around for you know, a couple of years just continuing to improve it. And then we decided, hey, this is, this is something really the world needs. And so we commercialized For All Secure. And so it's a little bit of, if you kind of think about a parallel, it's a little bit like autonomous driving, right? Where it begins in a lab and then it becomes, hey, you can show you can do this um, in a course, like with the DARPA challenge. And then today we have Tesla. And so we think there's going to be the same sort of course in computer security, right? The workforce challenge isn't going to go away. We need to let humans focus on what they do best, the creative stuff. And we need to teach computers how to hack. So first off, you're a better man than me. I'd totally be dropping those names of, of those people that, that made fun of you back then. <laughs> um, and, but also, the, so the Cyber Grand Challenge, uh, from the sound of it, were the rules for it to be entirely automated? It was completely automated. So the guy who ran it was a DARPA PM who had actually won a black badge, Mike Walker, actually. Um, so he played on... Uh, I think he played on the team Hates Irony, which was an anagram for Raytheon SI at the time, for those of you who kind of know CTFs. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so Hates Irony, Raytheon SI. Um, so yeah, the entire idea was like in a CTF, a full spectrum DEF CON CTF, you all have services, you don't have access to the developer, you want to hack other people, and you want to defend yourself. And so the entire idea was to replicate that, but with a machine. So machines are attacking others and machines are defending. And these are all with applications that no one's ever seen before with zero human intervention. Um, and so it's, you know, it's quite different than I think maybe some listeners may think. This wasn't like there were known vulnerabilities or something. It wasn't like you got log4j or something and then you had to exploit it and land and pivot. This was all go find zero days. Yeah. Um, Fuzz from so scratch, right? That's what it was about. And then for defending yourself, you had to patch the vulnerability, but actually gameplay worked into this much like an in industry. So if you patched it, you had to make sure you didn't lose functionality. And you also had to make sure that you didn't have too much overhead. And this is where the gameplay was pretty interesting. What Mayhem would actually do is it would create like 16 different candidate patches. And then it would try to figure out which was optimal to play at that point in time. And so actually, like one of the reasons we won is other people would field patches that would be extremely slow and have huge performance degradation. So they'd be, you know, they focus too much on the computer security point of view and not enough on the end-to-end -end business case. Wow. So you're not only automating finding the exploits, you know, fuzzing from scratch on something you haven't seen before, but you're auto-generating patches uh, for the exploits that you find, uh, you know, not just a single patch but a whole batch of patches that you then do, do fully automated uh, performance testing on and, and choosing which one is, is optimal performance-wise. Which one and even when, when to do it. Like if you have a patch that has 40% overhead, you probably don't want to field it until you think that you're actually being exploited. It's a little bit like you don't want the overhead unless you know that it's really needed. So there was so, a huge gameplay part of this. Actually, we spent a lot of time thinking of cyber war. And you know, if you played CTFs, there's things like you always focus on the weak first. So if you come up with an exploit, you always want to try it against the lowest scoring candidate first. Because you know, if something goes wrong, you don't want to be 
giving a strong player uh, any extra hints. Uh, things like that. There's a whole bunch uh, into this contest. This is absolutely intriguing to me. I find it so coming from a from a pen testing background, having written fuzzers, having actually helped write a static analysis to a 4A vendor from scratch, this is absolutely super cool to me. Um, the question I have is you you do all of this outside of the source code. So you're actually doing automating full reverse engineering to some kind of IR language, or, or are you not using SAST and instead doing fuzzing and looking at responses? The DARPA did this right, right? They didn't say how you should do it. They said, all we care about is the result. And so result, we used sure. almost zero SAST. Okay. Which was kind of funny, right? Because most people in industry think of SAST. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it. I'm going to get a list of all the vulnerabilities. And if I can just go through that checklist, just like, you know, we can all go through our holiday to-do list, we'll be done. We use basically zero SAST. So we would take the binaries, we would raise it up to an IR, but we use the IR to do things like fuzzing and symbolic execution. So symbolic mm -hmm. execution is where you model paths in the program as formulas and logic, and then you use the math to try to drive execution down them. And that's really the genesis of For All Secure, because we're, we're saying something a little bit different than industry. We're saying that it's always better to say, hey, here's a known vulnerability, and I'll give you a proof of concept exploit, rather than trying to enumerate every possible vulnerability. And that's just because there's this you know, fundamental trade-off. If you're going to try to list every possible problem, you're going to have false positives. Well, if we can give you a working exploit, you know exactly what to look at. And then the patching, uh, the patching layer, how, how would that work over the top of it? Are you uh, doing like a binary wrapper? Are you modifying the binary directly to change the, the pathing? Like, how does that actually operate? We modified the binary itself. So we would, we would raise it up and then we had to do binary editing. So, you know, if you had a patch and it wouldn't fit, you know, if, if you guys are big into binaries, right, you know, often they're not relocatable. So you'd have to figure out, hey, can I put in the segment of code to check if I'm getting exploited? What if there's not enough memory there? And then I'll jump out to some other area of code where I have enough, then I'll jump back. Well, that, by the way, that jump out and jump back, that introduces overhead. So maybe that patch is less efficient than one that you can inline completely. So it's these sorts of things that the machine was doing completely autom automatically. Absolutely amazing. Adrian, we'll go back to you because uh, I have a gut feeling I could geek out all the way down to the bits and bits yeah. here forever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, a lot, lot, lot to get to, like, uh, and to remark on here. So, you know, kind of fast forwarding, you know, from that Cyber Grand Challenge, you know, we've seen some companies, some more successful than others, you know, that that have done really well in these kinds of uh, competitions and and have these strong academic backgrounds, um, you know. But I, I suspect there's um, kind of an interesting journey to take to get from that to a product that you can sell and and that you can market. So it'd be it'd be interesting to hear some of that. And I love that the product is called Mayhem, by the way, R reminds me of the, uh, I'm trying to remember what insurance company that, that was that had the, the Mayhem campaign. All, all state. All state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the reason we couldn't get the domain name. Right. Um, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause all state had registered it cause it was part of their marketing several years ago. So we called it Mayhem, right? The idea is the computer uncovers the Mayhem before a real life attacker does that way you can be prepared and handle with handle it on your own schedule but creating a company has been really interesting we're probably on our fourth you know uh 
fourth version of it, right? So version one, when we were starting to look at this, we were academics. We wanted to show what was novel in advancing the state of the art. And we we're really good at pushing symbols. So when you know I go in and say SAST is the wrong thing to do here, it's not because I don't um, understand SAST and haven't even published papers in SAST. That's because I think it's the wrong thing to do just from a security standpoint. So that was the first. The second is when we went and we did the Cyber Grand Challenge. So we're no longer worried about advancing the state of the art. Here, engineering starts to play a bigger role. You want it to be efficient. You want it to be reliable. But it still only has to work in one contest. When we created the company, probably the biggest shift is going from research tech to an actual product. And I think it's it's kind of interesting because it parallels in some ways open source versus commercial products. Like when you're when you're doing something like Cyber Grand Challenge or research or even open source, it has to work for just you. But when you start selling something, it has to work for all your customers and all their requirements. And sometimes the sort of things they put up as barriers are not ones that you would even think of. Um, but you have to handle. And you start having to handle things like, how do I install it? Making sure you have enough disk space. Handling, people always want to say, hey, how do I integrate this with my own accounts and my SSO that I already use? Stuff like this. Um, and what so those are some have been of those, kind of the, the interesting parts. What are some of those unexpected barriers that you ran into? Just wondering if you have any interesting examples there. So I think there's been a couple. So so one, the biggest has traditionally been that Gartner did not recognize what we did. And uh, you know, Gartner is a little bit like Big Blue. You know, there's a, a large set of people who kind of look at them for guidance. And we're like, look, you know, Cyber Grand Challenge, DARPA spent $60 million and no one used SaaS. This should be an indication if you want to automate, that's probably not <laughs> the best approach. Um yeah. and so I think that was the, the first one is kind of in marketing. The second is what you're doing or what Mayhem's doing is it's taking your app and then it's trying to hack it. So you have to give the app to Mayhem so that it can run it and reset it. And we ask people, hey, you got to give it to us as a Docker. And this has probably been the biggest barrier that we didn't even think about. We thought, oh, people Dockerizing their apps. Everyone can do this. Docker super, especially today, Docker super popular. And it turns out you can go into pretty much any high-tech company. And while they may be dockerizing a lot of their code, certainly it's not ubiquitous. So even problems about just like, how do you get the code into Mayhem um, has been interesting. I guess the, the other piece is we focused really on executable code. And so we've had to start adding in more interpreted languages. And we focused on executable code just from like DEF CON, right? Like you never got... Like I always laugh when people are like, all right, re.net code. I'm like, dude, you can decompile .net. It's not not hard. There's no reverse right. engineering. So that's that that was part of it is just handling all the different languages out there. Yeah, and I, I think Tyler and I can definitely relate with the the Gartner issue. Uh, we are both industry analysts, uh, neither of us at Gartner. So that that was something that as a non-Gartner industry analyst, you heard constantly. What was uh, more often it was Gartner stuck us in the wrong bucket. You know, they, they misunderstand what we do, uh, you know, and, and yeah, somewhat, you know, they, they don't have a category for us, you know, so we're having a really hard time uh, educating the industry as to what we do and why it has value. Yeah. And they also like an academic, there's either static analysis or there's dynamic analysis. It's either one or the other. But actually, dynamic application security testing means something very specific in Gartner. It's basically just a web scanner. 
Yeah. And so even something that's kind of universally with everyone else in common sense definition, given dynamic analysis, you're in the wrong Gartner bucket if you say that. Yeah. And, and so that's a good clarification. Uh, I think when when you say application security in general, most people, uh, or at least to a lot of people, that's synonymous with web applications. And uh, and it looks like you do API security as well. So I, I think it would be good to uh, focus on that a little bit on, on specifically, uh, you know, what your tools can, uh, you know, can, can work with, what, what kind of uh, software. We've increased it over time. So when we first commercialized, our core product was on any executable code. So this would be compiled C, C++, Fortran, Go, Rust. And the reason that we focused on that is, quite honestly, that's most of what we were hacking before, cyber-physical systems. And so Mayhem, for code for binary, we've literally been used to check um, weapon systems. We've been used to check ICBMs. Um, and then we've also been used by companies like Cloudflare and car companies. But when you start looking at kind of the broader market, there's a huge number of people who are just putting a web app, right? They're not really developing something that's going to ship on a billion devices or is safety critical. And we looked at these and we said, a lot of these are just getting connected through APIs. And so we created Mayhem for APIs specifically to try to focus on that one part of the problem and do a really good job on it. So we have two things we handle, Mayhem for code. So if you can put it in a Docker image and it's executable code, we can analyze it. And then APIs where... It can be any code as long as you're exporting something where we can represent it in an open API spec. So it can be uh, like a REST uh, web-based web -based API in that case. It can be. So it's you know REST um, uh, in any language. We try to stay a little bit about saying we're not web overall. And this is kind of one of those questions. The academic in me is the one who doesn't want to say it. The marketer in me maybe does. When you start talking about web, really like your web browser is doing all this JavaScript rendering. So even figuring out what routes are there um, can be complicated. And it's, it's kind of easy to do a crappy job. And we didn't want that to be the ethos of our company. So when we say API, we're specifically saying you told us the API routes, the, the things that you care about that are going to be getting potentially untrusted information. So you're talking about DARPA not caring how you do it. They're only interested in the outcome, and it seems like that had a big impact on how you how this how your product works, how it delivers that outcome for for customers, and it seems markedly different from what we currently see in the market, where you know, a lot of SAST and DAS tools just kind of blast away with this huge laundry list of uh, different different styles of tests, and this huge stage of analysis is just trying to separate out the, you know, the, the false positives from the true positives. So, you know, touch on that a little bit on, on why you chose that route. And also I'm kind of curious how you handle that conversation with customers, because I feel like, you know, the typical cyber analyst has a little bit of this uh, FOMO mentality where like a bajillion false positives, they seem to be fine with, but, you know, the idea that there might be any false negatives, uh, they're, they're somehow not okay with. I, I don't know if you've had the same experiences. I have. And that's part of what we're trying to change. I don't know how successful it will be. So when I was at Stanford, right, I, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, um, Coverity was just spun out. I actually took classes from Dawson Engler, and I know some of the co-founders of Coverity fairly well. And what I saw with 
tech tools like that is they have you know 25% or higher false positive rate. Of course, you can always come up with a data set like an industry data set and then kind of play to that data set to show lower, but you can have quite a bit. And there's this really weird, it's almost bad for industry. The way you sell those tools is you go in and you have to find a bug. Literally, someone could give you formally verified code. And the only way you're going to sell is if you find a vulnerability. And so I thought the market forces were a little bit odd. Compare that to a CTF or compare that to actually real life and you're an attacker. All you care about is do you break in, right? And so that's really what Mayhem focused on. And we talked a little bit about CTFs and Pico CTF and things like this. The way we went about this is, is uh, I'll tell a little story. So one of the people that we recruited from Pico CTF, his name is Richard Zhu. Most people know him today as fluorescence, as part of fluoracetate, the guys who, who owned the Tesla two years ago. So he makes you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on pwn to own. What we were trying to do is replicate what they do with Mayhem. And look, if you go hire someone of that caliber, he's never going to tell you, I found all the bugs. He's never going to also give you a false positive. What he's going to give you is a proof of concept. And what we tell people is we think that that's the right way to go. It's much easier, even if you're a leader, to have a proof of concept because while, you know, kind of hypothetically their mindset is, I want to estimate the risk. If only I knew every problem, I could estimate risk. Instead, what we're giving you is actionability. Here is what we actually know we can exploit. And so I kind yeah. of go into the conversation. Do you really want a big list of, you know, if you're driving down the street of all the bad things that can happen, you're going to end up in a tank or never leaving your house? Or do you really want to know, here's something that I can prove? And, you know, I think uh, all the CVEs we see every year, you know, that's one of the things we've learned from the vulnerability management industry from companies like Kenna Security that it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of those vulnerabilities that are can actually cause harm, you know, actually represent any risk uh, to your company. Uh, a lot of them just aren't exploitable. You know, it, it used to be really irritating seeing all these uh, come out where they'd say, you know, this RDP bug might be RCE, you know, and, you know, years later, you know, you find it, 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 it never was. And it's... Um, you know, certainly yeah. from a defender perspective, it's it's very frustrating to see so much of that because it just wastes so much uh, of our time. Yeah. The other thing that is kind of interesting. So when we did the Cyber Grand Challenge, so we would find an exploitable bug and we talked about we'd, we'd patch it. And then we try to decide whether we should field that patch. And so we weren't given like a test suite. How did we decide whether or not we were going to you know, have a regression problem? What Mayhem is trying to do is it's trying to find untested code and test it. In some sense, all an exploit is, is an input that triggers untested code, right? At, at that point, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's really all it is. And so what Mayhem is trying to do is really kind of at a basic theoretic level is trying to come up with an input that tests 100% of your code. And so when we came up with an exploit and we patched it, we would use this test suite created by Mayhem of both good and bad to what determine whether there's any regression. And so this is why I say like, if you really want full autonomy, you, you actually don't wanna just find where the problems are. You're also gonna have to solve this regression problem because at least what I see in industry a lot is the barrier to becoming more secure isn't finding the vulnerability, it's deciding whether you can feel the fix. An excellent point, I think, to end on. I, I love the philosophy uh, of it, 
there. You know, I, th- I think it's something we need to adopt more broadly into other other parts of uh, security. And um, and yeah, lo- love the functionality, the the product as well. Uh, I've got one final question for you. Uh, why is the A upside down in your logo? Oh man, that's a geek gasm. So when we, we found the company, um, none of us are, are what you would call graphic artists. You know, uh, probably my eight-year-old has better drawings than I do. And so we needed a company logo and the upside down A is the mathematical symbol for all. So in formal logic, you have for all um, or there exists, and then you do proofs. And so really behind Mayhem, when we were writing these papers, we were using this math to show, you know, how our system worked and prove properties about it. And then it became our logo. And kind of funny, the our default logo was just the, the it's called LaTeX. It's the scientific editing system for all symbols. So we it was literally backslash for all, if you know LaTeX. <laughs> I love it. Love a, love a geeky backstory. All right. Yeah. Thank you, David. So much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today. Thank you, and have a happy holiday. Same to you. Stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to go over the Enterprise Security News. Workloads protected by VMware are the safest workloads in the multi-cloud. Private cloud, public cloud, any cloud. Stronger, with distributed protection to the API and everything east-west, inside, and cross-cloud. Stronger, with three layers of detection, trusting nothing and seeing everything, even the best hidden bad actors. Stronger, with an SE Labs AAA certified advanced NDR that brings the multi-cloud together for the win. You've got workloads, we've got security. VMware security, simply stronger. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash VMware to learn more. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds. Have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. We had an absolute blast putting together this year's Security Weekly Unlocked virtual event. All presentations are now available on demand for your viewing pleasure. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash unlock to register and watch now. We also have uh, some upcoming webcasts uh, that you might have seen that we're branding Security Weekly Unlocked also. Uh, Very excited about those. Uh, The first one is going to be, this actually isn't in the announcements, but uh, we're, we're doing a whole episode on building different kinds of security labs. Uh, so that that should be a fun one. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> you had it on hand. Very nice. I might be getting ahead of myself there, but I'm. If you couldn't tell, I'm very excited about that one. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash esw two five five to look at all the uh, click the links and look at all the the news that we're going to go over today. And I think we'll get probably the, we don't have a ton of stuff today, but uh, we've got some pretty interesting ones. Um, I think first, you know, Tyler, I didn't see this. We've been talking about what to call, what to rebrand unicorns as, or Mm. or how to deal with the unicorn problem that there's, there's almost a thousand unicorns now uh, globally. And, um, yeah, apparently somebody somebody coined them dragons. 
uh, or the replacement for unicorns. So he's pitching dragons, uh, and they have to be at least twelve billion uh, oh. for for the valuation oh. to be that's, called a that's, dragon. That's astronomical. That's a huge number. Yeah, and you know, I think anybody trying to replace unicorns, you know, the way they're picking that number is they're they're looking for it to be fairly rare. You know, so they're just looking at, okay, how many are left if I put the number here? Okay, how many are left if I put the number here? So at 12, I think it's something like three. No, it's 19. If you, if you make it 12 billion, and this is as of August, it's probably changed now. There's probably 100 dragons. <laughs> and and but, that's, uh, 19, that's 19 for cybersecurity-specific dragons or for generalized no, no, tech, tech everything. dragons? Okay. Yeah, the U.S. Dragons would be, and, and this is back in August. I totally missed this, um, but I'm bringing it up now because we've talked about this so much. Um, but at the time, uh, in August, the U.S. Dragons were Stripe, SpaceX, Instacart, Epic Games, Databricks, Rivian, Chime, Fanatics, and Plaid. So no Cyber Dragons. No cyber dragons. And I actually put together a, a spreadsheet. Uh, I don't have it open at the moment, but I don't think any cybersecurity companies reached that 12 billion mark. Uh, I think uh, the the largest is just shy. Was it Snick? Sneak? Sneak or Snick is up there for sure. I'm, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to load the same sheet because you shared you shared that sheet with me earlier today. So I have it open in one of my 3,700 Google tabs. Yeah, I've I've been sharing a lot of a lot of sheet and uh, a lot of a lot of sheet. Is that, was that an intentional pun? It was. <laughs> it was an intentionally unfortunate pun. No, Tanium. <laughs> Tanium is the largest at nine oh. billion, and SNCC is eight point six. Lacework oh. all also up there at eight point three. Wiz should be up there. Two point seven. Yeah, Wiz is six. So yeah. Wiz is number five on that list. Who is going to be the first world's first cyber dragon? Cyber dragon. <laughs> mm. uh, and I like I, that I term. It's, I like that term a lot. It's specific to our market. It and I, we can set the limit at twelve billion exactly like you know the article said. I, I think yeah, it, it works. makes sense to uh, to take bets on what's going to be the first cyber dragon. Um, and and why take bets on okay. when that's going to happen? I will set the over under date to be June of next year to be June of next year. And I will also even set uh, odds. If someone's willing to DM me and take them, um, I will set or figure out a way to set some odds that it's going to be in the cloud security space by June of next year. Okay. By June of next year. Uh, I think it's going to happen. I think we'll see our first dragon in Q1 of next, next year, personally. Whoa. So Um, you're taking the under, you're taking the under all day. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm, I'm betting on Q1 and, um, as far as the category goes, I mean, that's, that's a pretty safe one. Cloud, cloud security is, is a pretty safe one, but, um, oh man. AppSec? AppSec? Gosh, I mean, I can't tell you. So I've been in AppSec for half my career. And everybody's always used to say AppSec is a niche niche market inside of a niche market, meaning AppSec inside of security is so small, it'll never it'll never be a monster. And now we've got in consideration for the, the world's first cyber unicorn as an AppSec player. 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's going to be some kind of detection and response company, like like a, like an XDR vendor. Ooh, got any names just, on that list? Since you do have the uh, the dragon list in front of you. Yeah, well, I've got the unicorn list uh, in in front of me, and I think there's a good chance it's going to be somebody already on this list. That's uh, kind of a, like a lower unicorn you know when they raise one of their next rounds they, they could be up there run, um, run down the top the top handful again yeah honestly i it, it could be uh, a services uh, xdr firm like Ar- arctic wolf is right at number seven on that list mm, i forgot about them yeah yeah, so uh, arctic wolf networks is is right there but yeah starting from the top um Actually, there, there are five that are over $5 billion in valuation, and it's Tanium, SNCC, Sneak, Lacework, Netscope, and Wiz. So you got two of them. Lacework and, and Wiz are both CloudSec. Sneak or SNCC yeah, is AppSec. Netscope is SASE. It used to be yep. Casby. Tani- mm-hmm. Tanium endpoint slash probably trying to be XDR. Yeah, they haven't gone that route yet. So that would be... That would be an interesting move for them because uh, I'm not sure that they've got that strong in EDR play, uh, to be honest. You know, right, they, here's, what kinda... Here, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do, Adrian. I'm going to take your list. Yeah. I'm going to publish it on Twitter and I'm going to do a Twitter poll and we'll there see how many people vote uh, on the next site or the first world site, the world's first cyber dragon. And we'll let the crowd source it. We'll let the crowd design. Number eight on that list is an interesting one. Coalition is a cyber insurance firm that also has products uh, that they they basically push on their policyholders. Uh, well, not even push. Like I, I think that's part of the holding the policies. You've got to use their stuff that they actively monitor. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting to see where those cyber dragons come come into play. Um, I can't wait to ask the world. Yeah, yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll look for your tweet and uh, make sure to share that. Awesome. Pull that up here. All right. Um, let's see, where were we? Yeah, so Dragons, uh, $12 billion. Looking for our first there. Um, an interesting funding. We don't have a ton of funding, you know, I assume, because it's, uh, you know, December. You know, it's not, not really a good good time to make those kinds of announcements, but we do have a few uh, funding announcements here. Uh, we've got Corellium, which if memory serves, wasn't that the company that Apple sued because they basically facilitated people finding bugs in, in iOS. You know, they, you, you could, yep. you know, basically, basically run VMs with, uh, you know, iOS images with, you know, virtual iPhones. So you could uh, fuzz and test. Uh, that, yep, that, yep. that attack surface, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't remember the specifics of a lawsuit. I believe you. You're probably right because that's absolutely what they've built and what they've created is kind of a hypervisor module for purpose-built um, testing of systems, right? Rapid hardware prototyping, security testing, et cetera, over the top of whatever underlying operating system you need, including ARM-based uh, systems in particular. It's interesting. So they raised an A round. I don't know how they were funded before this because they've been around for a couple of years. I think they've been around since at least 2017. 
And, uh, and the press release doesn't even mention Apple, but I believe that was only a couple months ago. It was earlier this year that, uh, that I think they, they won that lawsuit or it was settled uh, at a court. I forget exactly how it, how it wrapped up. But, um, but yeah, very, very interesting company. And, and I'm glad they won it because there aren't a whole lot of organizations that do this. If you want virtual Android devices, you know, dozens of companies that you can choose from. Uh, including AWS. I, I think AWS does that as well, where you can just spin up uh, vir- virtual Android devices for testing. And um, much tougher to do with with Apple stuff. You know, in fact, uh, you see in a lot of data centers, like like there'll be just like a Mac Mini sitting there in the data center because they, you know, they need the Mac Mini to be able to build uh, whatever app uh, the company publishes. And there's there's just not a smooth way to do that in the cloud or anything like that. So Apple okay. tends to be this kind of weird one-off because uh, a, a lot of things still depend on their hardware. Yeah. Yeah. I remember working at a, um, an AppSec company a while back that uh, put together racks of physical um, Apple devices and we were using them for, we would hook them up and runtime debug them in real time and basically to run applications, to exercise them, to do all sorts of things for security testing of individual apps on devices and there just was no good exactly what Carillion brings to the table the ability to have like a you know 100 vms of apple running on different revs of apple versions uh, operating system versions etc um we actually had racks and racks of of apple phones and ipod minis and yeah. ipod you know whatevers and and tablets and all with different versions so that we could run all these apps and test them looking for security bugs yeah, yeah, kind of an awkward, uh, awkward place to do it, you know, because they defend that so much. You know, on the on the plus mm-hmm. side, you know, their their hardware is 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 pretty tight. You know, it's it's uh, you know, there's a reason that iOS bugs are worth, you know, well mm-hmm. over a million dollars. I'm not sure what they're priced at now, but uh, but yeah, also inconvenient for an, anybody mm-hmm. trying to do any kind of testing or uh, app production at scale. Absolutely. It's a lot easier on the Android stack side for sure. Yeah. And then in the, uh, uh, on the market side of things, uh, the other really interesting thing here was Zero Fox, uh, you know, talks that uh, they're going to go public uh, via SPAC. Wow. With an expected <laughs> equity value of $1.4 billion. Wow. Okay. First of all, there's a handful of things here that give me pause. And I, I, you know, I, I don't like talking bad or talking about a company's percentage chance of something when I haven't done a deep dive with the executive team and I haven't done, you know, a deep dive on the product in a couple of years. Um, so please take this with a grain of salt. But 1.4 billion is such a very small valuation to be doing this, and to do this in a situation where the SPAC market has already collapsed public publicly wise. Um, the biggest SPACs of last year are all down 30 to 70 percent from their hot, from their highs. This feels to me like it is doomed for failure. Um, but I'm not I'm not a you know analyst in this space per se with regards to the publicly traded markets and how these things work. So um, maybe it'll pull off because it is smaller. I don't know, but it just it seems like a scary proposition to me right now given current market states. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've got to agree, you know, Zero Fox is, um, it's not a big market, you know, they're, they're kind of unique in that market, you know, focusing on on the social side of things, you know, and 
digital risk management, you know, I think is kind of roughly the the market I would put them in. Mm-hmm. And it's um, you know, we we've seen some some uh, some challenges, you know, going to market via spec. You know, I think complex earlier this year is an example of that where they they tried to go public via spec and uh, ended up uh, pulling out of that. I think shortly after after going public. Yeah. So like uh, like any good um, you know market analyst, let's go ahead and circle back to the state of this thing at the end of Q1. If I'm right, we'll bring it up on another episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. If I'm wrong, we won't bring it up at all and pretend it never happened. <laughs> that works for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Z Fox uh, is going to be their their ticker. Should be should be interesting. Uh, let's see. So, uh, really interesting report uh, popped up in in one of the slacks that I'm I'm in, and uh, this has been so contentious. Uh, so, phishing training or security awareness training, whatever you want to call it, it it's a, a huge market. You know, no, no, before went uh, public earlier this year. Uh, we've seen tons of acquisitions in in this. You know, this is uh, kind of a key piece of a lot of companies. Uh, cybersecurity portfolios is having some kind of security awareness training. And uh, yeah, basically this report uh, called Fishing in Organizations, Findings from a Large-Scale and Long-Term Study. Uh, I think it covered uh, well over 10,000 people uh, and and the study went for 15 months. And basically the conclusion was, you know, security awareness training uh, is – not nearly as effective as other studies in the past. Uh, and, and like half of this paper is, is, you know, talking about the, the previous studies and, and why they were flawed. Yeah. But basically they said it's, it's not effective and in fact can have negative side effects. Yeah. I didn't, um, you know, when I, when I saw this paper come across the wire, I had flashbacks to my uh, master's degree time and decided not to actually spend the time reading it because it's long and it seems very academic and pedantic, which is fine. That's what it's meant to be. Um, But I'm not surprised that, you know, here's the thing, anti-phishing training, security awareness training in general, it's a scenario where all you have to do is have one person fail to lose the game, right? And it's an impossible scenario to secure. Yes, and and maybe I'm wrong at saying this. I haven't read the paper. Um, but yes, you can increase your security efficacy, right? You can maybe get a certain percentage of people to not fall for it. But at the end of the day, all it takes is one in your toast, right? And so, um, you know, I think how you define winning the game of security training or winning the game of anti-phishing, how you define that answer determines truly what your what your success rate will be and whether it's even worth doing these types of things, right? If you say, hey, we're good if we can cut cut down our risk exposure by 50% or 30% or 70% or whatever the paper says the efficacy rate is, we're good. If we can do that, we're happy. That's that much better. Then go ahead and do it. But if you set the the security or the end game of we won't fall for phishing and we won't get compromised by phishing, you're really setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And, you know, one of my big issues here is that with turnover, there's always somebody who hasn't gone through the training. That's right. And, 
different companies do the training in different ways. You know, we've seen a lot of negative uh, unintended side effects. Like I, I think it was the Chicago Tr Tribune that pulled everybody's bonuses for the year. And then somebody used the, hey, you're going to get a bonus phishing template on them shortly after that. And I hope that person was fired because that's just that's so. just wrong. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we've seen that. We've seen and there's so many factors involved here. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember back in the day when I was working uh, as a pen tester for a, a consulting firm, you know, we actually did quarterly uh, phishing training uh, for a small a small-ish credit union. I think they had 15 to 20 branches in in uh, New England. And, you know, they got to the point, well, like 90% of the employees were, uh, you know, working at bank branches. You know, they, they were bank tellers. And the scope of their job is pretty narrow. You know, and, and in that case, you know, they got really good at, at spotting phishing and, and avoiding that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and it wasn't just email phishing we were doing. We were doing pretexting, you know, all, all kinds of different things. Uh, and, and I just don't think it works as well for like a general office worker who's, you know, 10%, 20%, 50% of their job is answering emails and, and replying to emails. And some of the un unintended effects we're seeing here is they're, they're over-reporting things, you know. And I think you do – it is important to train employees on um, spotting stuff and having a mechanism for them to report it. I think that's important. But beyond that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not so sure. And, and I think in recent years, one of the things that really kind of turned me off on a lot of this stuff is I started seeing companies that would write up employees that clicked on, on uh, phishing emails, you know, and if they did that, if that happened too many times, they get fired, you know, and people's, people's pay even being ducked, you know, like, like time off without pay yeah. if they clicked a, a phishing email, you know, so all, all of a sudden using it as this kind of punitive measure against employees, uh, you know, for something that should have nothing to do with their job performance and has nothing to do with, you know, what, what they were hired to do there. Yeah. I think that the stick side of the carrot and the stick problem that you're describing is not a popular way of executing exactly for the reasons that you're talking about, right? It's just not related to it. And, you know, it's just, that's such a difficult scenario. You would literally, you'd probably hurt uh, you know, such a meaningful uh, uh, percentage of your employee base that it's almost, it's almost impossible to go with the negative reinforcement model. It has to be positive reinforcement. It has to be frequent training. It has to be continuous training. And then where do you draw the line between that and wasting time? right and not getting work done because when you're doing these fishing trainings you're supposed to be doing something else to be building the business right so it's such a balance um against risk and i think the reality here is let's never expect perfection because it's impossible to achieve yeah and i i think that's kind of my final thought on it is um you know this shouldn't distract from the stuff that gets through i mean you've got to have some kind of plan some kind of mitigation uh, you, you have to plan on somebody clicking things, you know, that, that are going to do malicious stuff. You know, it, it's, it, that, that's another kind of trend that always annoyed me. The don't click stuff, like people made stickers and all kinds of things like that. Um, <laughs> which is, it's just ridiculous. It's just, uh, you know, almost a statement that, Hey, this is hard and we've given up. So we're, we're just gonna, 
you know, the easy way out is just to blame the average user for everything that goes bad in security. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, might uh, bring it back up again on another episode after I have time to to go through the whole paper. Uh, but it, it looks pretty comprehensive and uh, uh, somewhat damning. So it, it, it's going to be interesting to see <laughs> the rest of the industry's response to this report. Uh, because, you know, I, I think one of the more effective attacks against this is going to be yeah, hey, in, in certain scenarios, you know, with certain factors, you know, it can be helpful, you know, it can be useful or, you know, those guys that are using it uh, that way, they're doing it wrong. We, we actually do it correctly over here. So I'm, I'm expecting to see a lot of a lot of stuff like that come out. Oh, yeah, there'll be a lot of a lot of finger pointing, a lot of uh, name calling. Uh, it should be drama on a platter. Now, oh, that, that paper is about the bad fishing. Anti-fishing technology. <laughs> we, we, we've got the good stuff. <laughs> we have next gen. We have next gen. Yeah. Uh, so uh, interesting story here. Log4j, which we're not going to talk about much today. Just uh, kind of a side effect of that. Gray noise, uh, which is a really interesting threat intel company. It basically helps you weed noise out of your environment. Uh, they categorize and give you information on different noisy IPs on the internet. So that there are probably hundreds of companies now that do internet-wide scanning, Shodan, Census, um, you know, BitSight, even you know, some of these security scorecard companies do these full internet scans. And you can easily categorize that stuff, pull it out of your, your logs, use uh, uh, gray noise to, to filter that kind of stuff out. Yeah, and I, they made... I, I, Go ahead. I love I love gray noise. Andrew Morris, their CEO. I go I go back a few years with him. They're mm -hmm. just doing it. They flipped the model on its head. Instead of saying we are going to put a bunch of sensors out on the internet and look for it, look for attacks and tell you what's important to you. What they're doing is they've got sensors all around the world, all over the internet, looking for the noise, the scanning, the junk that nobody cares about. And then they bring that into your environment and they allow you to filter and clean all of that garbage and junk out of your logs, leaving you presumably with real attacks and real data that you can then act upon. Um, you follow <laughs> Andrew uh, Morris on Twitter and follow Gray Noise on Twitter. Andrew is just this snarky, fun dude, and I love his Twitter feed too. I highly recommend taking a peek at it. Yeah, it, it's uh, sorry. I was just laughing because uh, it just occurred to me that they they do network garbage collection. It's kind of yeah, <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah, and that sounds like a snarky kind of comment that Andrew would make on his feed. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and his, his tweets are a lot of fun and and just as likely to be insightful. There's some oh, interesting rabbit holes sure. he goes down identifying. You know, that there's some of this noise uh, that, yeah, that he finds the, out there. He's one of the brightest young entrepreneurs that I've met in a while uh, to the point where I wanted to invest in his company early on um, just because of how how smart that guy is. He's just really, really on point. Uh, highly recommend looking into at least the Twitter feeds, if not Gray Noise directly. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Jonathan Crane a little bit, you know, like started this whole thing just by himself, just bootstrapped, you know, and and then, you know, when he was ready, uh, raised a modest amount of money. And uh, at this point, J. Crane has actually uh, 
uh, you know, his company uh, got acquired. And be interesting to see what what Gray Noise does from here. Yep. Um, interestingly, I was trying to use, I'm trying to remember what I was trying to use Gray Noise for. Uh, so yeah, we we were discussing. I uh, was discussing with someone uh, how many of these organizations do these full internet scans, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like Shodan, because they actually had Shodan, the the founder and creator of Shodan on Paul Security Weekly last night. And so I was in the, the Discord having this discussion and we we're talking about how many, uh, you know, how many actors there are that do full internet scans. And uh, I couldn't get the number from Gray Noise because AWS had its third outage of the month and Gray Noise <laughs> was impacted. Oh, jeez. Um, but the answer ends up, uh, it's o- over 10,000. Over 10,000. Wow. And, and some of those might be the same actors, like Shodan's got sensors all over the internet, you know, that, that do these internet-wide scans. And I'm sure other companies that do similar stuff uh, also do that. But, yeah. Over ten thousand yeah. sources are actively scanning the whole internet. But but back to the AWS suffering a third outage of the month. What the hell, AWS? You know how much of the world runs on the back of your stuff? You and it was get east better. again. It was, you it was US, get better. US that's east unacceptable. Again. Yeah, that's just completely unacceptable. When you are the infrastructure system, outages are not allowed. And what's going to happen if AWS has more outages like this? People are going to learn to, or they should have already been, distributing their workloads on multi-sources for, you know, fallback and fail-safe and all of those kinds of things so that they wouldn't break if one of their infrastructure providers went down. If AWS wants to remain the de facto, if you're going to build it, build it on AWS East or AWS West, whatever you're closest to kind of situation, they got to fix their stuff. That's This is not going to work. Too much of the internet breaks when AWS suffers. Yeah. And uh, over at Azure, I'm not sure if it's much better. I mean, they, they've had a, a, a really rough year uh, with security vulnerabilities, security issues, yep. you know, stuff just yep. like basic, you know, S3 bucket open type issues, you know, where, where, you know, data that should be private, you know, is accessible to either other Azure users or just to the public Internet. And I, I think we've seen at least a dozen stories related to that this year. And in fact, I think somebody from Amazon, uh, forget his name, Charlie something, uh, went over to Azure to try and, uh, you know, the general feeling is he was going over there to, to try and address some of these security issues that they've got over at Azure. Well, that's fine as long as he doesn't bring the outage issues with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah diff- different roles, I'm thinking. Um, yeah, well. Both need to be fixed. And actually, there was another one in Amazon uh, in the last day or two, and I don't remember the details, but something about uh, Amazon employees having the ability to reach into um, customer data and data buckets, which was another big, ugly vulnerability for AWS uh, in the last 48 hours. So these things are popping up everywhere. And, you know, if we think back to the early days of the Internet as an infrastructure, right, like you had you had multiple infrastructure providers. We would pull multiple um, internet connections to our environments to make sure things didn't go down. We built our infrastructure on top of redundant internet connections, right? And if we've now abstracted that infrastructure up into that layer that Amazon now covers, it feels like we have to have a similar scenario, whether it's provided by Amazon directly, properly, the way they should be doing it, or choosing choosing from multiple vendors, um, 
we really have to start as businesses focusing on our own reliability because we can't rely on the underlying infrastructure to be there when we need it. And it, it, it's going to be a tough lift because, um, you know, I, I don't think the average startup uh, or, or company that's moved to the cloud can handle doing multi-cloud. You know, there, there's just a lot more overhead and complexity there. You know, I, I suppose there's, you know, a market for companies that w- will build the overlay that makes multi-cloud yep. easier. Um, yep. You know, but certainly, you know, we need a solution and it would be it would be odd for it to not come directly from the Azure's and in, in the AWS's. You know, it's... Uh, you, you would hope so. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and, you know, people may be pointing out that, uh, you know, you're supposed to go multi-region anyway. You know, Amazon's own stuff has been going down just as much as everybody else's. So I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that. You know, I don't think Audible uh, would have gone down, or you know, the the ability to submit trouble tickets to to AWS. Um, you know, if it were as simple as oh, you know, you're just supposed to build multi-region. Well, well I think what's really going to happen here is. And I don't want to get on too long of a rant here, but, you know, as we move applications, as enterprises move applications into the cloud, they've lifted and shifted, shove them in the cloud as one app. Then over time, we're now breaking those apps into microservices and different features running in their own little app containers in isolated units, right? It's the rise of microservices. What's going to happen is instead of running your microservices um, all in one thing, you'll distribute your microservice load across multiple vendors, or there will be some kind of abstraction layer that lets the, the back-end vendor become irrelevant and you code to some kind of no-code layer that is then run in multiple instances for you. Um, that's the only way you can possibly get to a multi-cloud, multi-vendor scenario that really is going to work cleanly without having significant overhead for the developer team. So I think there has to be some kind of abstracted layer for this to properly set up. Or Amazon's just got to fix it. They just got to learn how to fix it properly and not go down. Uh, because if they keep going down, people are going to find ways to distribute. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I, I mean, Amazon is so deep and has such a culture uh, around, you know, surfacing those kinds of problems and, and fixing them uh, that, that it's 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 kind of shocking to see three in one month uh, hit them. So, yeah, ho- hopefully that's, um, you know, they, they kind of figure out a common source, you know, maybe it's all coincidence. I don't know, but you know, we're talking about a company that lays its own, uh, trans oceanic, uh, uh <laughs> fiber, and, you know, bought a company to do that. You know, they build their own hardware, you know, to, to make, make sure things go down less, you know, that, that there's less, uh, that can go wrong. They, they run custom firmware in their, on their diesel backup generators. Like if, if AWS can't do it, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. So talking about other problems that have been around for a long time that are really hard to overcome, uh, there's now another super easy way to take over an uh, AD domain and become domain admin, create your own domain admin. <laughs> it's a combination oh, of uh, two different CVEs. And I, I mean, there's probably plenty of AD infrastructure out there that this is going to be a, a forever zero day for. So pen testers are going to be, you know, five years from now are going to be creating domain admin uh, with, with this technique. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, so, um, <laughs> it's interesting. I used to use Log4j as my um, example. I used to say, could you imagine if somebody could pop Log4j? It's used in everything. And then those things oh, really? are used in everything, right? And now it came true. The other thing I always used to say is, man, AD is, if you pop AD, you get everything. That should be the target of every attacker. There you go. Here it is. It is. So I got to stop. I got to stop coming up with doomsday, doomsday scenarios. They came to, they appear to come true. Uh, e- either that or, or you need to tell more people about them. Oh, nobody listens to me. <laughs> that, I'm just, a, po- I'm just a podcast co-host. I'm just a podcast co-host. Nobody actually listens to me. Uh, and, and they, they just made it so easy. Like, like the, the tools are already out there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, th- this one's a slam dunk, you know, for, you know, extortionists, you know, criminals, pen testers. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, again, brings up the question, how, how long, you know, is Active Directory worth it? You know, are, are there any clear paths off of Active Directory? You know, it just Where seems like, uh, yeah, Jump Cloud. I don't know. Oc- I mean, that's, Okta well, that's the point. Let's, let's say you bail. Let's say you bail off AD and you go to Okta, you go to Jump Cloud, you go wherever you need to go. Uh, here's the thing, man. It's still a single juicy point of failure. If you can pop Okta you know, and pop everybody's Okta instance, think of what you get access to. If you can pop a jump cloud, you know, for whatever, whatever zero date, same, same, you know, same theory exists. I call it the um, voice amplification. As an attacker, yeah. you're always looking for voice amplification. Hack one, compromise everywhere scenarios. Those are the things that cause, you know, forest fires of problems for the world that you can take advantage of. A perfect scenario is the transitive trust in software, i.e. log4j, right? How it transitively goes from one package to another because you embed it in things that are embedded in things that get used in things, right? Um, and so pop it once early in the food chain, smash everything all the way up the chain. AD is the same problem, right? And it just it doesn't matter where it lives, whether it's you know in Active Directory or Okta or Jump Cloud. It's a, it's a, just a dangerous scenario. So those vendors have to spend significant time making sure that they secure those environments. That's that's really what it comes down to. Well, and I, I think one of the reasons that it's it's so you know, damaging is because Active Directory is is so tied into Windows. You know, and Windows is a yep. well understood attack surface. You know, there's plenty of malware and, and tools to hack it. Uh, you know, the 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 knowledge is is broad about how to hack it. Um, you know, and an Active Directory does so much more than just a, a jump cloud or an Okta. Like it, it's tied into so many pieces of it, uh, and, and tends to you know also be on flat networks. You know, of older companies that have lots of tech debt. You know, so you kind of add all that together. You know, and and that's part of why Active Directory is is that perfect place to uh, to point your attacks at. Yep. And the, uh, other, the other thing I will say about this too is imagine if you you um, anybody any company enter any enterprise and I think there's a number of them that have targeted this rightfully so as a business any enterprise or company that owns your identity physically owns your identity if that company gets popped the voice amplification of the attack is so much stronger, i.e. Facebook, LinkedIn, Google um, Google itself for uh, authentication, right? Whether it's G Suite or whether it's personal Gmail and Google authentication. 
you pop it once, you get everything. You get literally everything related to that yeah. enterprise and each person within it. And so those are just very, very dangerous places. You know, they have to be done securely. And it's just hard to do. Yeah. Yep. All right, moving on. We got a few squirrel stories and then we'll wrap this segment. Um, two squirrels? I love it. Two squirrels. You know, the, the first one is, is just... Um, you know, I, evidence that I, I just need to do more more reading. Yeah, I barely know what a tardigrade <laughs> is. I know that they're well, also know more called, than me. <laughs> they're also called water bears, I think. But they're the these tiny, tiny organisms that get tested on a lot because they're so resilient. They can survive in space. They can survive at uh, zero degrees Kelvin. Uh, basically, they they go into some kind of uh, state where they can you know, survive just about everything. And a tardigrade has been quantum entangled with a superconducting qubit. And I, I just, I don't understand any of that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, yeah, I have no clue what this stuff really means. I am just, the minute quantum is used in a sentence, I have to admit, I turn into a complete and total idiot. I know nothing about it. But conceptually, the idea of putting one of those little water bears because i love the term it looks like a water bear if you click on the link it's not wrong yeah. but putting one of those little water bears into a state of you know schrodinger's cat i don't know if it, if i'm here or there or anywhere at any given moment just sounds like it'd be fun to see i mean you, so so one of the reasons i included this is I, I do think it's important in cybersecurity to be familiar with other research and, and things going on, everything from gadgets to uh, technology to to science, you know that this stuff eventually impacts us in in some way. And, and quantum has has been a kind of a nothing burger buzzword in cybersecurity <laughs> for a while. I think the only valid use case I've seen uh, for for anything quantum related has been like a random, you know, sor source of entropy for encryption or something like that just you know like like a you know if you need good uh, random number generation uh you can buy an appliance that has some kind of quantum stuff going on inside you know but but then cloudflare points a, a camera at a wall of uh uh lava lamps and achieves the same <laughs> the same goal so and plus you know, the I, lava lamps look way way cooler let's be real they do. And it's hilarious. And it, they have it somewhere where you can just like walk down the street and you can see it through the glass. You know, it's, it's, uh, in some office location that is on a public street. I'm in, I think that's fantastic. So, um, in the future on the show, I, I would like to have, I'd like to bring in some experts, you know, somebody come in, you know, explain, you know, what a superconducting qubit is, you know, some of this stuff. I, I think it'd be interesting to bring in some non-security uh, experts to to explain some of this stuff so we can better understand uh, maybe not how, you know, what happens to tardigrades, but uh, but how it, <laughs> it will eventually affect our industry. I, I agree totally. I would love to see that, see you, see us bring on some of those, those uh, experts. But quite honestly, I do want to know what a tardigrade looks like when it's quantum entangled physically looks like. So that is a must answer. And in what can only be some kind of SEO grab, uh, Radio Shack returns as a crypto company. This is our other squirrel story. 
and by crypto, I mean cryptocurrency. Unfortunately, <laughs> that that the shortening of of crypto, the shorthand crypto, has been co-opted uh, for for cryptocurrency. Sadly. Yeah, go ahead and cut back. You see my face? There you go. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it does tend to happen. You know, I think CompUSA that brand was brought back as the face of some e-commerce thing. You know, I think Blockbuster has been brought back a few times for various things. It's, I, it's gotta be brand recognition and SEO. I, I can't think of any other reason to use it. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I, I, I love tokens and crypto and DeFi. Like I find it very interesting. It's, I understand way more about that than I do quantum. I'm definitely not a rock star at it, but I understand more about it than I do quantum. And this report says absolutely nothing other than we're bringing back the Radio Shack website to talk about low hanging fruit of DeFi and crypto literally tells us nothing other than they're coming back with a potentially radio token to do a money grab. So we'll see. So I think on the uh, on the kind of funding investor side of things, it's interesting because this looks to be a, a PE or, or a VC shop, retail e-commerce ventures that acquired this dead brand uh, a year ago, something like that. And they probably uh, acquired it for next to nothing and found a way to make more money out of it. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I just, I just think it's interesting this concept of uh, taking a, a well-recognized but dead brand and combining it with new businesses instead of trying to create a brand and then promote that brand. But yeah. I think it's just it's going to end in confusion. I, got, I think for, I'm going to find a way to. I think I'm going to find a way to resurrect uh, jorts um, and the brand <laughs> of jeans shorts and use it as my own personal brand. Combine that with a uh, surge. <laughs> something something else from the 90s yes sir give me some jorts and surge and i'll be running zima. around forever we'll be good to go zima yeah <laughs> all right that's all we've got for this segment uh in a few minutes we'll be right back to wrap up the year and and talk about the year's most interesting interviews and stories that that we've done in the show when it comes to your network visibility is imperative because you can't secure what you can't see. Riverbed's network performance management solution gives you 100% network visibility 100% of the time. Now you can resolve performance issues and security threats up to 90% faster and reduce response time, damage, and cost spent on remediation and containment efforts. Connect with Riverbed today and learn how their NPM solution can protect your network by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash riverbed. Picture your team being able to map out the external attack surface as it grows and see the same attack vectors as a hacker does. Most tools out there do asset discovery, but stop there. Enter Detectify. It takes an inventory of exposed web assets and automates vulnerability testing for security misconfigurations, expiring subdomains, and risks in third-party software. Here's the cool part. They crowdsource payloads from leading ethical hackers. It finds bugs you actually want to fix and finds them in time. Start a free two-week trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash detectify. Go hack yourself. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Join us January 20th to learn how to build your own security lab at home or at work. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. 
Really looking forward to that lab webcast there. We're going to go over different kinds of labs you can build. You know, so, you know, if you want to study for the OSCP, you know, you might want to build an offensive testing lab, maybe have some uh, some vulnerable, uh, intentionally vulnerable VMs running there. Uh, if, if you are building a lab at work because you want to be able to test new products and, and try new things out, you know, that that's going to be a different kind of lab. If you want to test mobile apps and web applications and, and things like that, uh, that's again a very different kind of lab that you're going to need different stuff in. So we're we're going to cover a lot of different types of labs in that webcast. Should be a lot of fun. All right. So wrapping up uh, a year of ESW. Uh, it's it's been a big year for me uh, because uh, I don't even remember when it was. Tyler, somewhere halfway through the year, maybe a little more than halfway through the year, uh, Paul stepped down and and I became the main host of ESW. Yeah. You became the man. You became the myth, I, the legend. I, and you're about to hit a year. I had forgotten that your first uh, Enterprise Security Weekly was episode 212, was the beginning of this year. Do you remember? Was it in January itself? Was it like early in January? or? Yeah. No, it was, it was like January 6th. It was the uh, uh, yeah very first week of January. Holy smokes. I've been doing this for a year now, and we haven't gotten any better. Adrian. 43 episodes, 129 segments. Uh, <laughs> you weren't here for all of them, but you were here for most of them. Yeah, I had to skip every, you know, every once in a while I had to maintain my sanity and go do something else. But no, I'm just kidding. I have had an absolutely amazing year doing this. I've loved every second of it. And I hope you guys keep me around for the foreseeable future. Yeah, no, I, I, I both love the knowledge that you and, and Katie bring and I love the irony that you're both in marketing for competing companies. Uh, <laughs> it, that, that irony is not lost on me. And I'm, I'm, I have to do my best not to uh, chuck her company under the bus at every turn, but <laughs> no, Katie has been an awesome addition to the team as well. I've loved having her. Um, she's just such, I, you know what the key is. And I've, I say this to a lot of people, most people think I'm, I'm blowing smoke, but the key is just working with people that you love working with and it, it doesn't feel like work anymore. Right. And so the last 12 months of doing um, uh, ESW with you guys wasn't work. It was fun. Right. I come on here, I talk about cool stuff and, you know, give my opinions many times wrong, sometimes right. And you guys actually let me give me a platform to do it. So yeah, uh, I think Katie's an excellent addition to the team. You know, we never like to see Paul step down from the from the baby he helped create from scratch. But you know what? Um, we're killing it without him. So we're we're going to go forth and carry the torch into next year. Oh, he's making more babies. He's he's got other babies to take <laughs> oh, care of now. <laughs> easy. That's that's like something I just ugh, don't want to watch or or consider. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually, we, we do have some uh, new Security Weekly podcasts coming in, in the next year. And uh, one of them is, is a big passion project for, for Paul. Obviously, I'll, I'll let him announce that. I'm, I'm not going to not going to say anything about it here. So uh, I won't I won't le I won't leak that either. Um, but I'm, I'm privy to what it is, I believe. I think it's the one I'm, I'm thinking of. And it's going to be freaking cool. It is really going to yeah. be, in my opinion, one of the best podcasts on the market across the board in the security landscape. I'm really excited to hear about it. Yeah, same here. And we're also going to have some more uh, industry uh, focused podcasts, you know, that that we'll be announcing, you know, so more in the general theme of the security weekly podcast that try and cover different parts of the industry, uh, you know, 
for different people, different roles. Uh, so we, we've got some some interesting ideas there, and I will be running some of those also. So I'll I'll, I'll be a host on uh, some of those new podcasts as well. So ho- how many hopefully- do you have any idea how many you're going to end up hosting? Hosting what your uh, host level will be next year? Uh, potentially as many as three, including this one. Wow! Uh, but those three, other ones will three be three times the Adrian. Three times well, the Adrian. This is a three-segment podcast, though. We we typically try and do two interviews and then a news segment. Uh, and both these new ones are just going to be single segment. You know, they're going to be much shorter, kind of like the Security Weekly news ones. Yep. So won't be nearly as heavy a lift as uh, running Enterprise Security Weekly. Indeed. So a year ago, almost a year ago, in January, we the big big thing we were talking about, a few things. Uh, Amazon was kicking Parler off its cloud. <laughs> yeah, so I remember that. Enforced downtime, you know, not not like this current downtime we're experiencing uh, this <laughs> month. <laughs> so that's that's funny, right? So year over year, what has Amazon done? They used to kick people off their cloud. Now they just take down their, their entire cloud and kick everybody off. Yeah, yeah. They they used to uh, kick people off on purpose. Now it's accidental. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Amazon. <laughs> it's an easy target, Adrian. I mean, we can't we can't walk away when they give us the layups, buddy. We got to dunk them. All my packages made it. I, I I can't complain too much. It's just not all my packets made it. <laughs> oh hell. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, a big story uh, was the SolarWinds hack. Uh, you know that went on for a while. There were stories within stories within stories there. And back in in January of this year, January two, 2021, we we're still talking a lot uh, about the implications of that SolarWinds hack, uh, which is so, interesting given what we've seen this year since. Well, right. I was just going to say, which is worse, SolarWinds or Log for Shell? Log for Shell. You think so? hundred percent. I think it's going to take a lot longer to unfold than SolarWinds took because SolarWinds was a, a single organization and they had a list of who their customers were, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was a pretty quick way of telling who was affected by that log for J not as easy. Not everybody knows, uh, or not everybody knew that they were using it. In fact, it was very telling how long it took some vendors to get their uh, um, their press releases out, their, their customer notifications of whether or not they were using Log4j and customers are just sitting there waiting to either find out that they have to update stuff or in some cases they already knew uh, that Log4j was, was in those systems and were dependent on those vendors to, to ship updates. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be uh, uh, super interesting that uh, it, I refuse to talk about Log4j in January because then I don't what I don't want to have is next December the discussion about how things got worse from Log4j, right? From January to December. So I'm not going to talk about it in January. I just refuse to. You know, I I think supply chain challenges were a common theme throughout the year, you know, whether it's a, a vendor getting hacked uh, you know, like like solar winds and uh, ubiquity got hit also, uh, or you know vendors going down. You know, like like Amazon. You know, and and uh, you know I think we had outages with all the major cloud vendors uh, this year, uh, significant outages. Uh, Facebook even went down for a while. You know, I, well, I don't that, know if that, we were- that wasn't that wasn't a negative, Adrian. 
Yeah, that was a positive. <laughs> that was a that was a positive result, and we're hoping it happens again and again in 2022. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, the, um, the real sad thing about the, that comment, though, is that my brother works there, so he's probably cursing my name right now. <laughs> uh, nice. But uh, we talked a lot about S-bombs uh, this year. We, we talked a lot about supply chain issues. The cybersecurity executive order came out, you know, mentioned S-bombs in there, mentioned, uh, I think, Section 4 was specifically on supply chain security. And uh, I think going into 2022, that's still a huge concern. You know, not just things like Log4j, you know, but um, what was it? The uh, UA parser JS uh, package, yep. the NPM package that uh, yep. had, you know, malicious installer uh, thrown into the NPM package. And and uh, can isn't it wasn't. And here's I'm going to show my ignorance on solar winds because I, I don't recall it. I just have a, a very poor memory. There you go. I filtered myself. Um, it wasn't solar winds also somewhat of a supply chain issue how they got popped though personally oh honestly I, I, i'm not sure i ever dug into the details of how they got popped so i can't yeah, I vaguely that. i vaguely remember it being some kind of supply chain issue that then got into their development processes and that's how it got blasted out but anyways i feel like the theme of uh 2021 truly was supply chain in some way, shape, or, or, or form. Like if we really did bubble it up to the top, a couple of important lessons that cybersecurity could have learned in 2021 going into next year is that cybersecurity across your supply chain is one of the biggest problems that we're trying to solve, right? Everybody's like cloud security, cloud security, cloud security. And yes, that's important and it's forward-looking. And as we move into the cloud more and more, that's going to be important. But software supply chain, SBOMs, uh, just as important, if not bigger. Yeah. And, and you know, moving on from that, um, I was just looking through my notes to see if I had any uh, analysis of, uh, of how SolarWinds got popped. But uh, connected to that, uh, asset management, you know, mm. you know what, what you work on in, in, in your day job. And Katie, uh, we, won't, we won't ignore her just because she's not here. <laughs> but we we actually had a really good uh, discussion on that. We we did a segment called "It's 2021." Do you know where your assets are? Uh, back in in early early January, that was episode two thirteen. Episode on that. Uh, a segment, yeah, a full segment wow. on on just asset management, and uh, I think it was you, me, Paul, and John Strand on that one. Oh if, yeah, if I recall yeah. correctly. I remember and that. Yeah, no, that, that's a good way. A good way to kick up yeah, the year. Episode 213, if you want to check that out, I'm sure it's 100% relevant today. We could just re-air it uh, <laughs> in January in a couple of weeks because um, I'm, I'm not sure we've progressed very much. So, I mean, that, that yeah. that's an interesting topic. Why why haven't we – and actually, I just put out uh, an article today, uh, published an article or an essay that I wrote earlier today basically saying that – Log4j was something we totally could have prepared for after the the Struts Equifax uh, breach back in 2017. That that was the perfect case study, the perfect use mm -hmm. case, uh, you know, to fix this kind of software asset inventory S bomb type of issue. Uh, but people haven't prioritized it, you know. So mm -hmm. I, I guess that's that's a question I have going into 2022. I. You know, with Log4j, is, is that going to be enough for people to change their priorities? What do you think? 
Oh, man. So it's interesting, right? There's all sorts of different assets when we're talking about cyber assets. And uh, an SBOM is a form of asset inventory. It's it's code assets that you're using within your applications, right? Um, and knowing what you have is kind of the fundamental underpinning of any way to do cybersecurity or, or any cybersecurity program. Awareness. Component. Yeah, just knowing what you have. If you don't know what you have, you can't secure it. And it seems cliche and every marketer says that. Um, but at the end of the day, you still do need to know where your assets are the, and define those assets in the sense of like literally everything that could be potential for risk, right? So um, do I think we get better in 2022? I do. Um, Gartner coined a, a term for this for that market, the cyber asset management and governance market called CASM. Um, C-A-A-S-M. They did that in July. So the market is officially coined in that regard. Um, and I do think as we progress into 2022, you're going to see more buzz come up around the chasm market, understanding where and what your cyber assets are, because it's fundamental to success, right? So that ties directly into Log4j in the sense of it's a cyber asset. Your your software code is cyber assets. Um, and so I think we'll see improvement, but I, I would bet dollars to donuts by the end of 2022 we don't have it complete we don't have it right it's a you know four five six ten year run to get that kind of um you know fundamental fix in place so we're hoping to be successful next year and at least laying the groundwork and starting to build recognition for cyber asset governance that that should help so i don't often think that it's a good thing that gartner has introduced a new term but i <laughs> do think it's important to i actually do a lot of uh, advisory calls over at ions on uh, asset management and I, I think one of the key things people need to understand is it's totally normal to have uh, a dozen asset management systems you know the the help desk service desk you know needs something totally different from what the network team needs like we have tons of asset management tools. We might not think of them or label them as asset management throughout the organization. And yeah, I, I think that's what's hurt efforts here in the past is people think they need to have one asset management tool for the whole organization and it's going to be service now. And it never gets fully done. It, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a mess. It's not maintained, you know, it's not yeah. clear who's, who's supposed to be, maintaining different things, different people have different use cases for it. And the security team has a very specific uh, set of use cases for cyber asset management. So I think it makes sense for that to live as a separate product, as a different category and yeah. exist even alongside, alongside other asset management tools. 100% agree with that. Yeah, the the cybersecurity focused asset management platforms like Jupyter One and Exonius that both Katie and I uh, work at uh, and are helping to build, it does not displace ServiceNow today. And it's never intended to displace ServiceNow. Uh, you know, maybe five, 10, 20 years from now when we're the size of Google or something, but that's not, you know, not anything that, uh, that we would think about right now. We live alongside ServiceNow because we have cybersecurity focused and specific views and vantage point into your assets and what you do with those assets and how you create actionable analysis and intelligence from them. That's the difference between a traditional CMDB or a ServiceNow IT asset management system and a cybersecurity focused one, um, cloud and cybersecurity focused one like Jupyter One. So, um, you know, the, the market's young, the need is young, but it's there and growing and we're excited looking into 2022 for this space. You owe me a briefing. I do. And I will put you on uh, as, as early as uh, first week in January. We'll get you in.
Yeah, you and Katie both. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stay on you two about it. No, um, you, you don't have to stay on me, buddy. We'll get you there in January. No problem. So another big theme is the sock uh, and, and whether or not the sock is really a thing. I, I've seen a pretty big schism uh, in the industry. Mm. We've talked about it a lot. We've had a lot of uh, guest segments on, uh, on this topic. And I know some CISOs out there that are trying different approaches. They're trying a more distributed approach to a SOC. The idea being, you know, maybe a lot of the security responsibility, including uh, security operations, you know, should reside with the asset owners, you know, because they're not going to have as many questions. They know their environments better. Uh, You know, they they know what's normal. They know what's going to look like an anomaly. It's just going to be a lot more efficient to do some of that work within different IT departments rather than have security try and do it for the whole organization. Uh, are we talking up- about are we talking about truly having a merger between DevSec and Ops? Is that where you're going with that? Yeah, so I, I think you still have a central sock and I think it mirrors uh, kind of where we see the security organization going in general. You know, so SOC is just a, a piece of that that larger uh, progress we're seeing with security in general, where organizations are realizing, look, we can't do security for the whole organization. There's never going to be a large enough security team uh, to do that. You know, we need other people to be thinking about security on a regular basis as they go through their workflows, as they make uh, different IT decisions. And uh and I, I think it's just an extension of that. But the security team still remains there as like an advisory group within the company. And they still do a lot of, uh, you know, kind of high macro level, um, you know, watching for trends, looking for anomalies, uh, you know, threat hunting, things like that, maybe stay within the the security team, you know, but day to day handling day to day stuff that socks do today, you know, maybe don't stay with the sock uh, in, in the future. Huh. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that distributes out. Um, yeah, I, I really don't can't add too much color on there. I've never been a SOC analyst in my life, so I'm always afraid to make commentary about the day-to-day life of a SOC analyst. But, I mean, you're certainly making sense to me. And I think it's another one of those, another one of those things like we were talking about with the um, – you know, phishing training stuff earlier is there's so many different kinds of organizations, you know, a cloud first, uh, you know, startup organization is going to approach this very, the SOC and and the idea of security operations very differently than a traditional financial institution, for example. Yeah. So I I think, uh, you know, also that that's an important note that there's not one, you know, fits everything model here. Yeah, I think it all comes down to risk tolerance levels, right? Depending on how tolerant you are of risk determines the level of depth of that capability you really need to have. Well, and also like the Log4J thing is such a solved problem for like 10% of the industry for those kind of cloud first uh, startup companies that, you know, got to start without any tech debt, you know, and have designed everything from the ground up to be able to easily find things and and quickly make changes to software. Not a big deal for them to figure out if well, Log4J is in their environment, you know. And then well, the also, other ninety percent of the industry. Big, yeah, also not a big deal for them because they were born after Java was hot, and nobody in their right mind uses Java anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, they still have 
cloud first organizations, even Uber runs SAP, right? You know, they, they've got two different sides of the organization. There's the, the cloud first people behind the app and, yeah. and, yeah. uh, you know, connecting drivers to riders and stuff like that. But then there's also the back office stuff and it's, it looks like any other old school bank yeah. or something like that. Yeah. The in, legacy in some of these stuff still there. Yeah. 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 So it, it's, it's an interesting problem because it, it is about risk and, and prioritization. You know, I'm not sure we're entirely honest with ourselves that, Hey, you know what? Next year, I'm not going to be any better at finding Log4j because if I do the risk math, it just doesn't make sense to spend that much time, the amount of time it would take to get good at that. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a law of decreasing return on that too, right? So uh, you're going to hit all your high-risk apps and systems first, then you're going to check those thoroughly. And at what point do you really give a crap about that tiny little thing sitting back in the corner, right? At some point, the return on digging for Log4j will decrease enough that you're, hey, we're just done. Okay, if we stumble across something somewhere, hopefully it's not PII connected and there's very little value to it, right? But just like anything, it's going to be hard to root out. It's like a systemic problem, Log4j, right? It's it's literally in everything we play with. <laughs> and when you think of it that way, it's like, how do you get rid of such a systemic worldwide issue? There, This thing's going to linger for decades. It's going to be around 10 plus years, yeah. 15 plus years from now. Yeah, and, and the... You know, world will continue to turn. You know, we'll we'll move on. You know, we might see other ones here. You know, I I think the big issue is how you handle that initial rush of we we don't know how vulnerable we are. You know, and one of the interesting things with Log4j, you know, that I don't think we've seen. I think the last time we saw it was with Meltdown Inspector, where people really didn't know what to do, and there was a mix of different advice out there. You know, we heard. If you had, you know, the latest version of Java or certain versions of Java, you weren't affected. We heard, we, we saw people trying to use their WAFs to stop it, not, not really fully understanding how it got exploited and all the different ways that it could. People were treating it as a web vulnerability when it was really, you know, a web app was just one of many ways to get data into a log somewhere. Yeah. So that that uh, kind of initial response to it you know now that there's so many more eyes on cybersecurity and, and and there there were so many competing like a lot of them were vendors trying to put out recommendations and uh, and everybody was putting out different tools and some of those tools would go through recursive jars and war files looking for these uh, class files within you know, nested within files and other ones didn't. So you run into that issue that we saw with Equifax where the real failure of Equifax is they didn't know how to find a jar file in a large corporate environment. That was not a skill that their security team had. Yep. Agreed. Sorry about my dog. I don't know if you can hear my dog yapping in the background, but sorry if you can. Yeah. Uh, was, uh, you've trained your dog to uh, bark every time Equifax is, is uttered. Equifax, be, bark, bark. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> yeah, get very upset at Equifax. <laughs> uh, another trend we saw was removing the password. I think it was mostly just a handful of companies. We're starting to see, you know, the the tip of the, uh, the trend there with Microsoft and Duo, you know, companies like that, giving you options to, to not just to use other forms of authentication, but to get rid of the password entirely, where there, there's 
literally no password hash there. there there's nothing, no form of authentication that uses uh, a text string. I, I, this is one thing that I wish, like we talked about at the beginning of the year about how this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. It's still not freaking here. How do we get it here? How do we get to the point that I can use, just use my bio every time, biometric every time I want to log into something? This has to happen. We have to get rid of that weakest link of passwords. It's everywhere. It's and and we talked about it like it was the next big coming. And here we are 12 months later talking about it like it's the next big coming. So I would love to see this thing happen in 2022. Yeah, I think I think we did the industry did great at offering alternatives to the password, but I I, I don't think we I don't think the message necessarily got through that, hey, we don't want just alternatives we want to get rid of it altogether like like just just delete it out of there because cred stuffing is still one of the most common uh, ways that attackers get into systems today and, and i'm sure pen testers too so yeah we're, we're gonna have to get rid of them entirely i think you know already in the devops space you know we see teams that just automate rotating passwords every hour like once an hour the password changes you know because why not because everything's fully automated but yeah, on the consumer like, side, that's, that's not a pain in the ass at all. That's not going to result in people looking for ways around it. I promise that'll be nice and easy. <laughs> but yeah, it, it would be nice to see. You know, I think it's it's nice that Microsoft did that on the consumer side for their consumer accounts. And I think it's interesting that that's where we saw it happen first, not on the enterprise side, um, at, at least for something that's a very, very large scale. Like that, that's the account you use to log into your Xbox services, into your email, uh, you know, everything, everything Microsoft on the, on the consumer side. So that, that, that was a pretty big one for me. And then I, I guess the last thing is, is just talking about the market. And, and I think we'll wrap on that because this year has just been completely nuts. Uh, I've got some stats here that I shared in the Slack earlier with you, but I think in, uh, where's my... Where's my number on 2020? Everybody was like, whoa, 2020 was the biggest year ever. There was just shy of, I think, $8 billion in investments in 2020. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure we've seen more than eight weeks in 2021 alone where there was a billion in investment in those individual weeks. Yeah, I don't know if you have if you have the graph or the numbers handy, but I saw some stats coming out of Crunchbase that were just like, and and don't quote me on these numbers, but it was something like eight to twenty-four. Like last year was eight, this year was twenty-four or twenty, something like that. Whereas, you know, three X the amount. I mean, just astronomical investment. Um, and we talk about this every week, not because it's well, yes, because it's a topic I love, but you know, we talk about it every week because these these cyber companies just keep getting money thrown at them. You you literally money is the cheapest thing right now. I'm I'm talking to some early stage investors. They're taking their seed round. They're not even pricing evaluation because they're like, look, we don't have to. People are literally giving us this money, saying, don't worry about valuing your company. We'll figure it out later. Like at the next round, we'll figure out what you're worth. It's like holy smokes, guys, this is out of control. Literally five six million dollars for no percentage of the company, just giving it to them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw that uh, that conversation, and it was. I'm trying to remember. I, I signed up for a trial of Crunchbase, and still, even with the trial, could not get a total uh, for all the funding this year. I did get a number on the the number of rounds, 
and I think it was somewhere around 670 uh, funding rounds for cybersecurity companies this year. But yeah, three three x at least over last year. Uh, I think sounds about right. In fact, um, back when I was at four five one, I remember when I left there in twenty seventeen. I think there were um, in cybersecurity specifically. I, I think there was a hundred and forty something investments. Was the total that we counted, and we're talking six seventy now. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And just in, in general, uh, some information from CB Insights on unicorns. In March, for one of our shows, I, I scribbled down some stats. There were 630 unicorns, not just cybersecurity, but worldwide, uh, all startups. 630 unicorns uh, totaled up to $2 trillion in, in valuation. <laughs> And nine months later, today, when I looked up uh, those same stats off of CB Insights, there are now 943 unicorns. So we gained over 300 more in nine months and another trillion dollars in valuation. <laughs> yeah, what's another trillion? No problem. Every, every single one of those companies is going to exit with a profit. Don't worry. It'll, it'll all work out just fine. <laughs> that's the analysis that's really going to be interesting is – two or three or five years from now, you know, how much of that extra trillion dollars, uh, you know, what, what was that actually worth? Cause it, you know, it's, it's not going to be that. I've, I've said this story before, um, back when I, I remember, and I've talked about my unicorn death pool thing that I wrote a number of years ago before on this, yeah. on this show. Um, that was, I want to say probably I was an analyst at Forrester maybe. So that had to be before 2015 ish. 2016 some 2014 somewhere in that window and um you know i was predicting that this just couldn't last that unicorns couldn't grow at this pace and exits couldn't be this profitable and here we are a handful of years later talking about decacorns and and you know uh, like 10 10 horned unicorns and um you know when when we're we're talking about that here i am again going this just can't be profitable this can't possibly work but I, you know, I, after getting burned on that last prediction, I just don't know if I can make that same prediction. Maybe this works and I'm just too short-sighted to see it. And then consider, uh, you know, one of the things we touched on earlier this year on, on the show was that Microsoft security business was rumored to be worth 10 billion alone in annual revenue, which according to some of the other numbers I dug up is a sixth of the entire security industry. Well, you know, it doesn't really matter revenue. What matters is valuation. Ask any startup founder. Yeah, and honestly, they, they don't do as many uh, acquisitions as you would think somebody uh, do, doing that much revenue and security would do. But, um, yeah, so we now have 42 cybersecurity unicorns. Uh, looks like we added around 20 more this year. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. 42. So we, we were adding them, you know, a couple of months, you know, yep. sometimes, so sometimes more. They're not unicorns anymore. They're just horses with horns on their head. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what else, what else here? Uh, we, we saw some big deals and stuff like that, but, uh, you know, I think, um, I, I don't know. Are, are, are we going to see, is it going to continue to to grow at this rate? Next year, um, I don't. I don't see any reason for it not to. 
I, mean, I hope so, and 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 I'm going to give uh, our super producer Goose the chance to throw the decacorn back up on on the screen here. Hopefully, we'll see more of these little beauties popping out in 2022 because um, they're just pretty to look at, and they're fun to talk about. Yeah, and maybe some dragons. Maybe we'll have a opportunity to get a dragon graphic up there. Yes, Goose, uh, go back to the drawing board and give us a, a cyber dragon. <laughs> That's the next thing. <laughs> Excellent. All right. I think that's a great place to wrap it. Um, thanks, Tyler, so much for joining me today on Enterprise Security Weekly. And also big thanks to Katie. Uh, big thanks to Johnny and Gustavo uh, for running everything behind the scenes there, uh, for oh, providing these, these great graphics. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you to those those two right there. They are fantastic super producers. We love you guys. You don't get enough screen time. You guys rock it. Thank you. Thanks to uh, Renee for helping us uh, find and, and line up uh, some of these great interviews that we we have uh, for doing all the logistics behind the scenes on that. Uh, thanks to Sam for uh, helping me <laughs> out of holes that I dig myself in uh, with uh, prepping for the show uh, and everything else that Sam does. Uh, but no thanks to Paul because he dumped the show on me. And made nah, me screw it. that guy. Screw that guy. <laughs> And hey, let me wrap up, Adrian. Thank you to you, man. You've been an awesome co-host. Thank you so much. You rocked it this year. Thank you for bringing me on. I've really enjoyed the last year with you guys. Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate you.